Well, hopefully you have your Bible open to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Do you know who the hardest people in the world to teach are? (laughs) There was another teacher in the first service, and they said, teachers. And Nigel's a teacher, and he says the hardest group of people to teach are teachers. I briefly was a, was, a, was a teacher, and I experienced the same. I would go to professional development days, and I couldn't believe no one was listening. No, there was no classroom management, and everyone thought, I already know. I already know it all. Now, I wasn't expecting to talk about teachers um, when, I, when I thought about this opening uh, illustration, but, but the hardest people to teach in general, not just teachers, the hardest people to teach are the people who think they already know what you're trying to teach them. The yeah, 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 I get it. The, the, I'm not going to let you finish your sentence. I'm just going to nod my head and I'm going to wait for you to finish talking so I can do the talking. Those are the hardest people to teach. The people who think they already know it all. And loved ones, that was the church at Corinth. They thought they had all the wisdom that they needed. They had the power of the Holy Spirit manifesting himself regularly on their Sunday services. They thought they were spiritual people. They thought they were mature people. I mean, some of them had only been a Christian for three or four years. Paul got the church started there in Corinth. We read about it in Acts chapter 18. He stayed there for about 18 months. And now two years have gone by and different messengers and different letters have gone back and forth between Paul and Corinth. And Paul is concerned about this church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he, he really cuts them down to size. He says, you think you're mature. You think you're spiritual. You think you're wise. He says, let me explain to you how much growing still needs to happen. The title for today's message is, God Gives the Growth. You probably noticed as Ben was reading the passage, that phrase gets repeated in verse 6 and in verse 7. Paul is trying to hammer it home through repetition. You need to grow, and only God can give the growth. And when we have this God-centered understanding of Christian growth and of church growth, really two things begin to happen in our lives. When we know that God gives the growth, here's the first thing that happens, is we begin to have a humble pursuit of maturity. A humble pursuit of maturity. The most mature Christians are the Christians who don't consider themselves mature. The Christians who are continually learning and growing are the ones who recognize that they still have lots to learn and lots to grow in. They can look back on their life. They can see the way that they've changed and the way that they've grown. But they know there's still so much further to go. Look at how Paul begins. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. Why does he begin this way in chapter 3? Why does he say, I couldn't address you as spiritual, per- as spiritual people? That's because in the previous chapter, Paul had been talking all about the Spirit and being spiritual and spiritual people and spiritual truths. Let me show you on the screen here. The print is too fine for you to read, but it's just by means of illustration. Right before chapter 3, these are all of the references to the Spirit and being spiritual and spiritual person and things being spiritually discerned. So Paul's saying, Spirit, Spirit, spiritual people, spiritual wisdom, Spirit, Spirit. But then he says, but I could not 
speak to you as though you were spiritual people. <laughs> this really would have caught the Corinthians off guard. They would have been saying all this talk about the Spirit. They would have been like, yeah, 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 we get it, we get it. We are the spiritual people. We're the church at Corinth. We have it going on. We're the mature ones. We're the spiritual ones. And Paul says, no, I, I can't talk to you as though you're spiritual people. He says, but as people of the flesh. People of the flesh, he says. The, the, the flesh is translated elsewhere as the sinful nature. And we'll get into that in a few minutes about why Paul says that they are people of the flesh. And then he says, as infants in Christ. They thought they were the mature ones. They had learned everything they needed to learn. They know everything they need to know. They're the ones with wisdom. They're the spiritual people. They're mature. And Paul says, you're a bunch of babies. You're infants in Christ. You see, here's what, the, here's what the church at Corinth was saying about themselves. They were saying things like, we are mature. And they were saying things like, we are spiritual. Now, this far in the letter, though, Paul has been dismantling that. Here's what Paul has been saying. In chapter 2, verse 6, that says 2, verse 1, but it should say 6. One typo per a sermon, at least, coming your way. All Christians are mature. That's what he says in chapter 2, verse 6. He says, yet to the mature, we do impart wisdom. All, all Christians are considered mature. They have, if they have the Spirit, they have everything that they need. He also says that all Christians are spiritual in that, that paragraph that I just showed you. Paul was saying, you think you're so special, church at Corinth? You Corinthians think that you're more mature than other Christians? You think you're more spiritual than other Christians? Here's the bottom line. Every Christian is considered mature. And every Christian is considered spiritual. And then Paul <laughs> cuts them down to size even more. He says, you're just normal. But then he says, actually, you're, 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 you need remedial training. He says, Paul is also saying, all Christians are mature, but you are infants in Christ. Let's go to the next slide. All, all Christians are mature, but you're acting like infants. And he says all Christians are spiritual, but you're living by the flesh. So the Corinthians thought they were way up here, better than all the other Christians. Paul says, no, all Christians are of the same status. But then Paul takes it another level and he says, the way you're living, Corinthians, you're not even living like a Christian. You're supposed to be spiritual, but you're being fleshly. You're supposed to be mature, but you're acting like an infant. Now, look at what he calls them. He says they are infants in Christ. Look at how he begins in verse 1. He calls them brothers. He's writing to Christians. He's not saying that you're uh, unbelievers. No, he's saying the way that you're acting is incongruent with who you truly are as a Christian. A Christian is supposed to be mature in their behavior. A Christian is supposed to be led by the Spirit, but you're acting like an infant. You are acting according to the flesh. Now, every Christian, at the moment that they place their faith in Jesus Christ, the moment that they believe that Jesus died for their sins on the cross, the moment that they place their faith in Christ and are saved, they are given a new identity. They have a new heart. There's a new command center at the core of who they are. They are a new creation. They have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them. Every Christian is given that. 
Every Christian is considered spiritual because they've been made new and they have the spirit living inside of them. But also living inside of them is what Paul calls the flesh, which is unredeemed humanity. Now the flesh used to be our boss. The flesh used to destroy us and dominate us. The flesh used to be at the core of who we are, but not anymore. We've been given a new heart and a new identity, and that enemy, the flesh, has been defeated, but the flesh is still hanging around. And the desires of the flesh, every time a Christian comes to a crossroads, they got to make a decision. Am I going to follow the leading of the spirit inside of me? Am I going to follow the identity of the new heart that I've been given? Or am I going to follow the flesh? And Paul is saying, you guys, keep following the flesh. You think you're spiritual. You can talk all the talk. But the way that you're acting, you're acting like the flesh. Paul outlines this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. He says, But walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. There's two sets of desires in us. And which one is going to win? Which one is truly us? Look at what he says. The, the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. Look what this says. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. What do you want to do? What does the true you want to do when you come to a crossroads? Will I sin or will I obey? What do you want to do? You, the true you, the new identity, your new heart wants to obey. What you want to do is follow the Spirit. But there are always these desires of the flesh that we need to continually put to death. So as Paul is writing this letter to Corinth, you can see this developing. You can see that Paul's very concerned about some threats to the church on the outside. The first two chapters, he kept talking about the wisdom of this world and being eloquent and being well-respected and being considered intelligent. And that was a threat coming from the outside. And now Paul is changing gears here. He's saying, there's not just a threat on the outside to follow the wisdom of this world. There's also a threat on the inside. That Christians have to make a choice. Am I going to follow the spirit or follow the flesh? So we're battling the wisdom of the world on the outside. We're battling the desires of the flesh on the inside. And as they are following their innate desires of the flesh, they're acting like infants. They don't know how to behave. So much of parenting, so much of teaching, so much of mentoring is helping people understand how to behave in certain situations. Oh my goodness, I could tell you some stories about things that happen in restaurants or grocery stores or, or at this church. Some of you can testify with, with, with our own children where we're in the process at different times where we were helping them learn how to behave. They, they can't act like an infant anymore. They need to mature. They need to act their age. They need to grow up. Any parent or older brother, sister or aunt or uncle or teacher knows about those hard lessons and knows that maturity is not according to age. You can be old but be very immature. You can have lived a lot of years but you've never grown up. Paul's saying, Church of Corinth, you guys, you guys got to grow up. 
You think you've arrived because you you have no humility. There's no desire for you to pursue maturity because you think you're already mature. Then in verse 2, he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. Paul says, when you were brand new Christians, I was feeding you with milk. But he says, now you should be old enough. I should be giving you solid food, but you're not ready. You're still not digesting the milk that I'm giving you. Now we read a, we read a sentence like that and we think, what does he mean by milk? What is the milk and what is, what is the solid food? Now in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 12 to 14, the author of Hebrews, different situation, different context, he uses the illustration of milk and food and he actually explains what he means by milk and food. But here, Paul, same illustration, but no explanation. It's not important for us to know the difference between milk and food. Otherwise, Paul would have explained. The issue is the readiness of the church. He says, you were not ready, and even now you're not ready. You see, they weren't digesting the milk that Paul was giving them. And because of that, they weren't metabolizing it. And they weren't growing. They weren't getting stronger. And so they weren't ready for solid food. I love how John MacArthur kind of breaks this down when he talks about what's the difference between milk and and solid food. He says it's the same content. It's just more detail and more depth. Paul He really just had one message. Hopefully, if you come here to Hope Church long enough, you're going to understand here. There's just really one message, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel for the forgiveness of sins for all who choose to follow him. It's just one message. I mean, think about the book of 1 Corinthians. What did he say at the very beginning? Chapter 2, verse 2. He's barely getting rolling. And this is, uh, this is what he said. Let's get 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2 on the screen. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Then he goes on and the letter progresses. And, and does he end off with anything different? Any additional information? No. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul has one message. He starts the letter talking about the cross. He ends the letter talking about the cross. It's all about the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ. Solid food is about the cross. Milk is about the cross. Now, there's a difference between depth and detail. A six-year-old can say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And they can understand that in a six-year-old's mind. And a brand new, a brand new Christian, whether a 16-year-old or, or 60-year-old or 78-year-old, they can all understand. When they're a brand new Christian, they can say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But there's more depth and detail, isn't there? There's, there's more things that we, can, that we can learn about and grow in, aren't there? Start with the first word in the sentence, Jesus. When you're six years old or when you're a brand new Christian, can you even contemplate or wrap your head around the idea that Jesus has eternally preexisted in the context of a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit? And then can you, is your mind ready to be blown by the fact of the hypostatic union that, that God became flesh and dwelt among us and lived a perfect life? Just the word Jesus. There's greater detail and depth, isn't there? The fact that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. All of these things. You can go deeper. 
Jesus died on the cross. Well, what, what, what was accomplished on the cross? Well, he died on the, so it was, it was a sacrifice. He died for me. Well, what about the Old Testament and how all the Old Testament sacrifices and the priesthood and the temple all point to Jesus? There's greater depth and detail in the sentence, he died on the cross for my sins. And what was accomplished there? It wasn't just a sacrifice. It was also a payment of debt. It was, it was also, it was also a, a payment, a ransom to set slaves free. It was also the means by which justification is accomplished so that the, the guilty can be declared innocent. Also, reconciliation was accomplished where a broken relationship was repaired. See, there's greater depth and there's greater detail. But loved ones, you never truly learn it until you start living it. Until you truly understand who Jesus is and what he has done for you and, and how that affects not just how you relate to God, but how you relate to every human being created in his image, particularly those who are part of your local church family, you haven't learned it until you've lived it. And Paul says, based on the way you're living you're like a little newborn baby who just can't keep the milk down, who's always spitting up, who's not accessing the nutrition, who isn't metabolizing it into his or her little life so that he or she can grow. As Paul says, you're, you're not ready for solid food. I want to go into greater depth and greater detail. It's not new content. It's always the same content. It's always the cross. But the way to learn it is by living it. Then he says in, in verse 3, he explains what's going wrong. In verse 3 he says, for you are still of the flesh. Your identity should be the spirit, but the way that you're living, you're living like you're of the flesh. He says, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? It was interesting that he zeroes in on those two things, jealousy and strife. Jealousy is something that happens on the inside. It, it's where we get our word zeal from. It's about a strong, passionate desire. These desires of the flesh. When we're led by this zeal, by this jealousy, that's happening on the inside. It produces strife on the outside. Strong desires welling up in one Christian in the flesh come up against strong desires welling up in another Christian and they butt heads. Jealousy inside the Christian produces strife within the church. Paul says that's what's happening. Now, there's all kind of, all kind of things Paul could have called out the church of Corinth on. They were having all kinds of problems. And yet he zeroes in on these things. Jealousy and strife. You know, before that great passage on the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul lays out the deeds of the flesh. So there's a negative list and a positive list. Let's get Galatians 5 uh, on the screen. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. Jealousy and strife are deeds of the flesh. Just what Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. Now, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality, they're all at the very top. That was all happening in Corinth too. Why does he start with jealousy and strife? 
You know, so often we, we tend to divide sins into sort of sexual sins and social sins. And in our world, because we live in such a hyper-sexualized culture and there's sexual temptation everywhere and really the sexual mores and ways of doing things are, are being, they're, they're being transformed in our culture right before our eyes, we tend to talk a lot and focus a lot about sexuality and rightfully so. But it's part of the same list and it's not in order of importance. Yes, we do have to be active and proactive in fighting and, and battling against sexual sin and standing out as lights in the world when it comes to our own sexual purity. But do we put the same amount of effort into social sin? Are we really going hard? Do we have the same boundaries in our life and the same accountability in our life to make sure that we're not being guilty of jealousy and strife and fits of anger? Because this is also a deed of the flesh. Many of us are enjoying in our small group right now the book by Jerry Bridges, The Transforming Power of the Gospel. Bridges has another book called Respectable Sins. And it just goes through chapter by chapter. Things like jealousy. Sins that, you know, they're not scandalous. You're not going to get on the front page of a, of a newspaper for, for being jealous or for being angry. But these, these things can rot away at us and can ruin us and ruin a church family if we aren't careful. He says, when, when you're behaving with jealousy and strife, look there in verse 3, he says, you're behaving in only in a human way. Notice it's about their behavior, not their identity. He's not calling them non-Christians. He's saying they're acting like non-Christians. And then in verse 4, he gets really practical. He uses an example. He says, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So here Paul goes again. This, these names he brought up in, in chapter 1, together with two other names. There were four groups at the church of Corinth. One was saying, I follow Paul. Another saying, I follow Apollos. Another saying, I follow Cephas, which was Peter's name. And I follow Christ. And they were divided into these four groups. And they seemed to have spiritual reasons for why they were divided. But really, at the core of it, Paul was saying there's jealousy. There's the desire to be first. There's a desire to be right. There's a desire to be recognized. And they're behaving in a human way. So that leads us to our, to our next sign. That when we, when we truly understand that God gives the growth, first off, we, we, it results in a humble pursuit of maturity. We know we're not mature. And so we humbly pursue to grow in maturity. And then secondly, it produces a healthy perspective on ministry. A healthy perspective on ministry. One of the problems that the church at Corinth had, and we're going to see it right through chapter 1, it's going to come up again even in chapter 4, is this whole I follow Paul, I follow Apollos thing. And they were... They looked at these servants of God, these people who were in, in ministry, in leadership positions, and their, their perspective on it was all mixed up. They were looking at it with the, the wrong prescription. It was like a, like a funhouse mirror. Everything is distorted and out of whack. And so he says, look, look with me at verse 5. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Now, why does, he, why does he not talk about Christ or about Cephas or Peter? Well, I, I think it's because Paul and Apollos actually were pastors in Corinth. Jesus never traveled to Corinth. 
For as far as we know, Peter at this time hadn't been uh, pastoring in that area. So he's, he uses a practical real-life example. He says, you remember when I was there, Paul, as one of your pastors? And you remember when Apollos was there? And he asked the question, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Notice he doesn't say who. He's not concerned with who Apollos is or who Paul is. He's not worried about that. He wants to know what they are. He doesn't want to to know about Paul's experience or the fact that Christ appeared to him. He he doesn't want to know about who Apollos is and how eloquent and intelligent and powerful of a speaker he was. He doesn't want to know who they are. He says, what are they? And here's his answer. Servants. Servants through whom you believed. Loved ones, the right perspective for church ministry is to understand that those who lead and serve among the church family are called to be servants. The church family needs to understand that, and those who are leading the church family need to understand that as well. I was sitting down with another pastor here uh, in Mississauga, a faithful brother who'd been ministering in, in this city, in this area for twice as long as I have. And uh, COVID notwithstanding, this particular pastor had been going through, the the last year and a half for him had been absolutely horrible. So many challenges and difficulties within his church family, within his staff, within his eldership. And he, he said to me, I'm just getting to know this brother, he says, the only thing that kept me going was knowing that my role is a servant. The... That was, the, the, the main, that was such an encouragement to me, such a powerful reminder for me that, that that is the only thing that can keep a spiritual leader going is to have that perspective of a servant. Not superstars, not celebrities, not even special. Just servants. It's only right that someone who's leading the people of God and following God and pointing people towards Jesus is only right that they're a servant because Jesus is a servant. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus wants those who represent him and those who point others to him to, to be like him and to serve him. So he calls them Servants, keep reading the the verse 5. It says, servants through whom you believed. Servants through whom you believed. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that good spiritual leaders are windows and not walls. A good spiritual leader, should you should be able to look right through them as though they're not even there. You look right through them and see all of the beauty of who Christ is. A good leader is a window. A bad leader is a wall. Sometimes a wall can look really strong. Sometimes a wall can be new and exciting. It just got built. Sometimes a wall can be beautifully decorated and aesthetically pleasing. But when you come across a spiritual leader that says, you don't need to look through me, you just need to look to me, that's when you need to run away. We're called to be servants through whom you believed. And then it says, as the Lord assigned. 
There was a time in which, it's described in Acts chapter 18, there was a time when Paul was called to be one of the pastors at the church at Corinth. It went on longer than Paul wanted. Paul was ready to leave. God appeared to him in a dream and said, no, I have many in this city. So Paul stayed for 18 months. And that's what God assigned. And then Priscilla and Aquila, Paul, they all leave. Priscilla and Aquila, they come across this guy, this young hotshot named Apollos. He says, great speaker. His doctrine wasn't quite on point, so they straightened him out, and then they sent him to Corinth, and he became the new leader in Corinth. God assigned those moments. He assigned those leaders for that particular time. And because God is the one who assigns things, Paul wants to be clear that he's very different from Apollos. It's not the same leader. And there's three really important truths that Paul lays out here in this passage. Let me break them down for you. It's diversity in roles, humility in service, and unity in purpose. In the next three verses, Paul is going to communicate these three things. The first one is diversity in roles. He begins with himself, verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered. But God gave the growth. That's that's what this is all about. God gives the growth. God produces maturity. God causes churches to grow. But he says, Paul had a role. His role was a planting role. He got the church started. There was no church at Corinth until Paul got there. So he planted. But then later, as the church was growing, Apollos was assigned. And his job was to water. It's very different. Very different to get something started And it's a totally different task to keep something going and flourishing after it has started. So there's a diversity in roles. Some leaders in the church are more entrepreneurial. They like to start things up. They like to motivate a whole big group of people and and cast vision. Other teachers emphasize a teaching or lead through a teaching ministry. Some people love to be out in front of a big, large group and feel comfortable speaking in any size. Other leaders are more comfortable in a sort of a one-on-one, face-to-face kind of an interaction. Some leaders love to serve behind the scenes. Other leaders always find themselves in front of others. Some leaders want to get things done and get things done quickly. Other leaders are willing to walk day by day through a really dark season with another brother or sister in Christ. There's a diversity in roles. Some plant, some water. Some move fast, some move slow. Some work with large groups, some work with small groups. Loved ones, the danger is this. When you look at one person and expect them to be all of those roles. When you look across the room at your small group leader and you're wondering why they're not being more assertive and and more of a leader and more of a visionary, well, maybe they're the kind of small group leader who journeys with people in the long term and just patiently shepherds them. Or when you look at an elder or a pastor or a staff member and you wonder, why aren't they more like this? Or why aren't they more like that? Or they're letting me down because they're not. Well, maybe we need to understand that there's a diversity of roles. And loved ones, this doesn't just merely apply to elders, people like myself and Jonathan and Roy and and Pastor Chris. It doesn't even just only apply to staff members like Andrew and Deborah and, and Jameson. It applies to everyone who's serving because we're all called to serve. And we need to understand that there's a, there's a diversity of roles. There's something that you can uniquely do that no one else in the church family can do. There's a diversity of roles. 
God gave the growth. Secondly, there's a humility of service. Paul says, so neither is he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He said it in verse 6, God gives the growth. He's saying it again, verse 7, God gives the growth. He says the one who plants and the one who waters, he says, neither is anything. Okay, so just, just do a little mental logic diagram in your head. So if you are not anything, what does that make you? Nothing. Apollos is nothing. Paul is nothing. Ted is nothing. We're supposed to be windows. A good window, a clean window. You can look right through, when window's really doing, the right, doing a good job, you look right through it like it's not even there. Is there even glass or is that just a frame? I can see right through. Nothing. Leaders do their best work when they're invisible, next to invisible. If someone walks out of here today and says, what a great church, oh, that was a good sermon, he's a good preacher. Fail, fail, fail. What a great savior. That's the only definition of, of, of success in church ministry or leadership or small group or leading the kids program or running and coordinating the ushers and greeters. Pointing to the Savior. We are nothing. Someone sent me an encouraging text today. said, hey, Ted, you're doing a good job of being nothing. I'm like, oh, thank you. <laughs> it's kind of my thing, you know, doing the nothing thing. We are Nothing. In our day and age today, we say something like, you know, we, we use the word something like, oh, you know, that, uh, that children's ministry leader, she's really something, you know. Those people running the kids camp, they're really something. That, 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 yeah, that pastor, he's, he's really something. That, that elder, he's something. No, nothing, 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 nothing. That's what Paul says here. We're not anything. It's God who gives the growth. Humility in service and then unity in purpose. Look at, verse, look at verse 8 with me. It says, he who plants and he who waters are one. They're doing different jobs. Planting's very different from watering. But there's one purpose. Again, the aim is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus died for my sins. We're all working towards the same goal. And then it says... It says, in each one, I'm still in verse 8, each one will receive his wages according to his labor. So even though we're nothing, even though we're servants, even though God is the one who gives the growth, God still gives rewards and wages. Paul's beginning to sort of lay the foundation for what he's going to say towards the end of the chapter about working and laboring for things that will last and rewards on into eternity. But it's interesting. Notice what gets rewarded. The growth doesn't get rewarded because that's God's job. What gets rewarded? The labor. This, this brother, this other pastor who said the only thing that keeps him going is the fact that he's a servant, he's been, he's been laboring in this same neighborhood for twice as long as I have. And numerically speaking, his church is smaller than our church. Now, you, you might think, well, God must be really working here and blessing here, and we must be doing something right. Really? Really? 
Like, do you think it's because, like, we're working harder over here at Hope Church than they are at some other church? Do you really think it's because we're, we, we love Jesus more than the other Christians? Really? No, God rewards labor. And you might think, well, I try to be faithful in leading my neighbors to Christ or my classmates to Christ, but no one seems to be following. But this person over here, they seem like every time I turn around, they're bringing a new person to church who just is trusting in Jesus. And you're like, ah, I'm trying. But they're, listen, we're rewarded for our labor. Think Think about Jeremiah. He loved the people of Judah. He walked around the city of Jerusalem weeping and crying, pleading with people to believe. He painstakingly wrote out his sermons by hand. And what did they do? They took them, tore them up, and threw them in the fire. He kept warning them, don't go to Egypt. And they all went to Egypt, and they captured him and brought him with them. Jeremiah labored and labored and labored and saw no fruit. Then he got Jonah. Jonah didn't give a rip about Nineveh. Didn't want to go and witness to this foreign city. So he goes and he runs off and God swallows him in a fish and spits him out. And he finally reluctantly goes and he's kind of walking around. Yeah, you all need to believe in God or else it's going to be really bad. The whole city repents. Not a lot of labor. But loved ones, the reward, the reward is in heaven. The reward is hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't be fooled by numbers or by influence or by following. A good Christian leader knows where the reward, where the wages are, are coming from. God's the one who gives the wages. Then he finishes off in verse 9. He says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. When he says God's fellow workers, he's not saying uh, we're working together with God. The, the apostrophe S there is possessive. We're, we are God's fellow workers, just like this is Ted's jacket. It used to be someone else's before I bought it at a thrift store. But now it's Ted's. It's possessive. This is mine. So the fellow workers, Paul and Apollos, belong to God. They are his possession. You're like, well, how do you know it's possessive? Well, just keep looking. Look at the rest of the context. God's fellow workers, God's field, God's building. The workers belong to God. The field belongs to God. The building belongs to God. And building is going to launch into the, uh, the next paragraph uh, in our study that we'll do, Lord willing, uh, next week. You see, loved ones, it's all about God. The workers are his, the field is his, the building is his. He's going to move from the agricultural metaphor of a field to an architectural metaphor of the building. It's all about God. Let me look, just a quick overview of these last four verses that we've been looking at. God assigns the servants, verse 5. God gives the growth, verse 6. And in case you didn't hear it the first time, again in verse 7. God pays the wages of the servants, verse 8. God owns the servants, verse 9. And God owns the field. Loved ones, it's all about him. He gives the growth. And when we understand that he gives the growth, loved ones, this produces in us a desire to want to grow, to pursue maturity, not to assume that we already have it, and to have the right perspective on ministry. Those who serve as leaders, pastors, and elders, and also the right perspective for us when we have the privilege of serving the Lord Jesus as well. 
Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you that although this letter was, was written at another time, written during, a, during a, a, a different period in history, written in, in the context of another culture, and yet because the Holy Spirit inspired Paul as he was writing, that these words are for us. And they speak to us in our situation, our own tendency to jealousy and strife, our own tendency to not live by the Spirit, but to live by the flesh, and our own tendency to look at ourselves or to look at our leaders from the wrong perspective. God, help us. Help us to pursue maturity. Help us to understand what true ministry is about. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.